You've likely heard the phrase that if you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it. So why has so much of the shipping world operated in a silo where we're just chugging along, making the same mistakes, and no one is learning from each other? Welcome into another episode of the Digital Dispatch Podcast. I am your host, Blythe Bremley, covering how your favorite things and people get from point A to point B, because everything is logistics. And that history lesson that I just mentioned is exactly what we're diving into today with special guest maritime historical professor Sal Mercogliano. I know we're only a few weeks into the new year, but this is already one of my favorite discussions I've ever had. So I hope you all enjoy it and get as much historical nuggets of information out of it as possible. Enjoy. I know it was a lot. I threw a lot at you. So let's switch gears a little bit because I want to have a fun conversation with our next guest because uh, I, I'm I'm a nerd about a lot of things. History, shipping, and marketing definitely are, are up there in my top five. But our next guest is pretty perfect because he's talking about all of these three things. So let's go ahead and bring on Sal Mercogliano. And hopefully, he's a history professor over at Campbell University specializing in maritime. So hopefully, Sal, I, I said your name right. Um, welcome into the show. I'm happy to, to, to get you on. Oh, you did great, Blythe. Uh, my problem is I've been taking notes here the entire time of the works I have to do now. So I'm. you gave me a list of things I needed to do. It was just on TikTok updating myself, so. Oh, you would kill it on TikTok. I'm, I'm, I, I, history and maritime. You should see the live streams that go on right now of just port, op, port crane operators oh, yeah. that are just yeah. taking containers off of ships and loading them onto the, and loading them in. And it's amazing to see the thousands of people that are watching it. So I know you would do a great job. But the reason I wanted to bring you on today's show is because you've done a great job already on a platform that I haven't mentioned yet. And that's YouTube. You've grown to thousands of subscribers, millions of views on your video. Um, like I said, you're a, you're a history professor at Campbell University. Um, you're specializing in maritime. Uh, you, you talk about content from a historical and a geopolitical perspective. And I just think it's incredibly fascinating. But before we dive into sort of the YouTube side of things and history side of things, give us the history of Sal. Who, how did Sal get into shipping? How did you get into to being uh, you know, a maritime historian? All that good stuff. Give us the lowdown. Sure. So I started off as a merchant marine. So I actually started off in a career. I sailed for three years. I was a graduate of the State University of New York Maritime College. Always wanted a career afloat. And I got to do that for three years. Uh, sailed ships. I sailed the world. Uh, it was a great career. I always tell people it was my best career I ever had until I came down with a condition that prevented me from continuing it. I got married. And so I had a transition <laughs> to a, a new career. And uh, I went ashore. I worked on the shore side for four years. And one of the things that really hit me from both working afloat and ashore was a lack of really information out there on the industry I was in. Got really interested in the history side of it. I'd seen some events that made me question, how do we get to where we are today? So I decided to embark on an academic career. I uh, went to East Carolina University, did a master's in maritime history and nautical archaeology. Those people would dive on wrecks. That's what I did for a while. And then off to get a PhD in military and naval history at the University of Alabama. And I've been writing history since then, but I've also gotten very interested and much more active in doing it on the maritime industry policy side and talking more about that. I've been a contributor to G Captain, for example, writing for them for a few years now. 
So with that entire resume, you've also, you've been a firefighter and you're also a play-by-play announcer, which I just found out from a Freightwaves colleague yesterday that you're also a play-by-play announcer, which is astounding because, I mean, have you always wanted to do all of these jobs or did, did you sort of just find yourself, you know, just out with these opportunities and you just seize the day? Uh, on the firefighting side, you know, being working on ships, you do firefighting. Every every sailor is a firefighter. And when I moved to where we are today in North Carolina, I didn't know anyone. I'm from New York originally. My wife's from North Carolina. And she said, you know, a good way to know people is join the fire department. And I did. And so for 20-something years now, I've worked as a paid firefighter. Matter of fact, I worked my way through grad school as a firefighter. It was a great thing to be doing, having my days off, writing and researching and at night at the firehouse. Uh, but it's been great to do that and actually very keeps me very grounded, I'll, I'll tell you. It's it, it's a good thing. Uh, the play-by-play announcing has been really interesting for me. If you want to talk about YouTube, one of the things that really prepared me for getting in front of a camera, being able to talk, is doing play-by-play announcing, something I never wanted to do. But started doing it, and it teaches you how to say a lot in 30 seconds. So, so what are your, I guess, your tricks for saying something within 30 seconds? Because I feel like for me, I am so long-winded and I have a, a tendency to, to say the same thing five different times if you probably listen to the intro of this show. But what is like a trick to say something in 30 seconds? My, my focus is to get it out fast, what you want to say. Don't mess around because there's always something you're going to add at the very end. And when you have that 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 compulsion to say the next thing stop and just just leave it right there it's usually enough and and people don't know what you were going to say if you cut it short anyway so you just get right to the point and say it and, and like i said it, it's been really weird for me because I, I i got a lot of attention during the ever given crisis back in march went on the air a lot and did a lot of news hits on that and doing the play-by-play uh, actually helped me quite a bit. Like I said, I can say a lot in a very short period of time, and I know not to be the long-winded guest who doesn't stop talking, never takes a breath, and never lets the host come in. Well, I sort of love when guests sort of just run with a story. So if you want to run with a story, because in, in this next segment of the ever topic of questions that I wanted to talk to you about is one of the bigger reasons that I wanted you on the show. I'm a history nerd. By no means am I, you know, nearly as educated as, as you are when it comes to historical events. So that's uh, one of the bigger topics that I wanted to dive into because one of my favorite quotes that I heard recently was the hip- history of shipping is the history of the world. I personally loved this quote, but I wanted to know if that is an accurate representation uh, based on your knowledge of is is the history of shipping the history of the world? Oh, I, I think it is. As a matter of fact, that quote is from Lincoln Payne, who's a friend of mine. He wrote a book called uh, The, the, the uh, Sea and Civilization, where he links together the entire world through the narrative of maritime history. And I argue it is true. I, I really fight the stereotypical history. I, you know, being a history professor, for example, one of the things I'll do in the very first day of classes, we got classes starting next week here at Campbell, is I'll ask my history students who are all freshmen usually coming in, how many of you hate history? And they are be brutally honest and half of them will raise their hand and say they do. And largely because they've been told and the way they've been taught history is its names and dates. And that's what they've been taught. When in truth, history is a huge story, stories in the word history. 
And when you make it a story, you make it much more interesting. And the thing that I find that has been done with history in the incorrect way is we tend to teach history by geography, by landmass, American history, European history, Asian history. The way we should be teaching history is Mediterranean history, Indian Ocean, Pacific, Atlantic, World Ocean. That's the way we're connected. And, you know, one of my favorite maps to put up is a map of the world based on the oceans, not the land. And one of the things you realize is to get to every single landmass, you have to cross a body of water. But to get to every body of water, you don't have to cross any land. And that's the thing that connects us more than anything else. And throughout history, it's been oceans and rivers and lakes and streams that have been the key element that have bonded us together. And I think that's one of the reasons why this subject has resonated so much recently. When you have the Ever Given Go Ashore in the Suez, for example, all of a sudden, here's a ship stuck in the Suez, blocks 12% of the world trade for six days. And everyone's like, wow, we were that connected that some ship half a world away is impacting our goods. Same thing with the ships off LA and Long Beach right now. I love that. I, I, I see that that's an example of like, you could have just kept talking and I would have just sat here and listened. <laughs> no, this, it's a uh, danger. If you let me keep talking, I'll like keep favorites. talking. So. <laughs> no, please keep going. <laughs> because I, my next question is, is probably might be a long winded question. I'm not exactly sure. But do you have a favorite historical story? And then what's your favorite historical shipping story? It's hard to have a favorite historical story. I mean, you obviously have areas of research that you delve into. And, and in truth, my areas of research change over time. So, you know, I was always one who loved Age of Sail. Early colonial history was a great one for me. You know, if you look at the early 13 colonies, you know, we tend to think of the 13 colonies when we look into the interior of the United States. I look at the 13 colonies as 13 little colonies situated on the Atlantic looking back outward and being connected that way. And I love the early history of the United States. It's a very maritime history. It's centered on these coastal waters. It's centered on the ocean for trade. I mean, literally, you know, I make this argument that nearly every war in our history is, is ocean-based of some kind. Whether we're throwing tea off three East Indiamen in Boston Harbor in 1773 to American ships being grabbed by Barbary pirates or French corsa corsairs early in the 1800s, uh, and even up to the Gulf of Tonkin in uh, the Vietnam War. You see that happening. So I, I love I, I love ocean based stories, obviously. You know, for, for me, favorite history stories are, are always a tough one. Right now I'm I'm doing a, a, a maritime history of the First World War and the connect the connectivity between the United States and Europe and what brought us in. And it, what gets, gets me about that story in particular, for example, is you're bringing people who had never been to sea before, farmers and farmers' kids, people from cities in the interior of the United States, and every one of them have to go on this ocean cr crossing to get across to Europe. And the stories from those taking part in that are fantastic. They never seen, you know, a ship with running water. They never seen ships with toilets, you know, because they, they lived in a farm or in a very rural area. And, and so, you know, to me, the maritime stories are great little micro histories that tell us about the larger image of our history and our world today. Do you have a, a favorite, I guess, maritime story that more people should know about? You know, th there are some great stories I think don't get told about. So I'll give you I'll give you one that right now is kind of uh, the, the anniversary is rolling around right now. So uh, there was a ship called the SS Meredith Victory. So the Meredith Victory was a victory ship built during World War II. 
Uh, this is part of the building program that took part in World War II. These are the ships, not the Liberty ships. These were the later generation, the Victory ships. And these ships were really steadfast. They were the backbone of the U.S. Merchant Marine in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, Meredith Victory was being used in Korea to resupply U.N. forces in Korea. But in the winter of 1950, the Chinese entered the, the Korean War and they spilled over the Yalu River and the United States and the United Nations had to do an evacuation of North Korea at the port of Hung Nam. The Meredith Victory was one of the last ships to pull out of the port of Hung Nam. They had already pulled out the UN troops, they pulled out the Korean troops, but what were left were refugees, North Korean refugees fleeing from the Chinese. And this ship, under uh, a ship's master by the name of Captain LaRue, was only certified to carry 12 people on board as passengers. They had their normal crew of about 25 to 30 mariners on board, but they were only rated to carry 12 passengers. When she left Hung Nam, she sailed with 14, not 14 passengers, 14,000 refugees piled on the ship. During the voyage southward, five babies were born on board. Uh, there are untold number of Koreans who their lives in South Korea are connected to that voyage. And mm -hmm. to me, that's one of those stories that doesn't get told about. And I, I can literally tell you dozens of stories like this throughout history to the boat lift out of New York Harbor on 9-11, where half a million people were pulled out of southern Manhattan and taken across the river to Queens, to New Jersey, to Brooklyn. Uh, those are the type of stories for me, those, those, those personal stories that really resonate and make it so important. You know, the water is seen as, as, you know, a pleasurable thing. We go to the beach, we go to swim, we go to pools, but water can be dangerous too. And it could be a barrier and overcoming it is always a challenge. And I like those stories where men and women are overcoming the ocean to achieve something beyond, you know, what they think they can do. And in the case of the merit of victory, that's a good example of it. Oh, great story. Love hearing that. Now, 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 switching gears a little bit to to sort of modern day shipping, which you cover on your YouTube channel, I mentioned earlier that it's really exploded in growth. And, I, and I, I'm currently binge watching your channel. So I heard you say on one of the shows <laughs> that covering the Ever Given stuck in the Suez Canal was really one of the, I guess, the, the gasoline that sort of uh, helped fuel the growth of your channel. Why do you think that story captivated so many people? Is it the connection that we, that we now feel, you know, as as far as people to, to other places in the world because of this ship? I think there were several things with it. You know, I I'd started my YouTube channel earlier. I had a few videos on there. And, you know, like the day before Ever Given, I think I had three hits on my YouTube channel. And then, you know, I posted a video on the day of Ever Given, and I think it was 3,000 hits I had. And I, I think Ever Given captured the imagination, again, because of that idea that there are these vessels out here that carry most of our goods. And... It's, it's like a, uh, it's taken, I hate to use the, the phrase, but it's taken for given that the ever given would sail without an issue. And then, you know, here's this issue where it's, it's human nature, it's weather. The ship goes sideways in the Suez Canal. It's, you know, its bow runs into Asia. Its stern gets hung up on Africa and 1400 feet of the vessel is strung across the Suez Canal. And for six days, nobody knows if the Suez Canal is going to open back up, if the ship's going to break in half. We get these great memes where you, you talk about how a little image 
can change people's perception. The meme of the digger sitting there kind of in microcosm in the midst of COVID really capitalized on the plight of everything. Here's this digger that is infinitesimally smaller than the ever given, just scooping away at the bow. And that was everyone's life in 2020. It was like, holy cow, or 2021. That was everyone's life. It's like, you know, I, I, I can relate to this. And nobody knew how it was going to turn out. You know, I, you know, one of the things I was able to do is bring on a salvage expert, a salvage expert who had salvaged Costa Concordia, the passenger vessel that had sunk off Italy. And, you know, he was like, this could, this could be very quick or it could be very long and it could be very bad. And now all of a sudden, here's the world's trade. And all of a sudden from nothing, you have 400 ships with each ship carrying over a billion dollars worth of cargo piling up. And people were being told, listen, you're not going to get goods like you thought you were. And even when they clear the backlog, it resonates through a butterfly effect. And what we saw continually since Ever Given are these same things. Right now, you're seeing the port of Ningbo, for example, shutting down, slowing down. The impact that's going to have delivering goods. We're going to get China to slow down during Chinese New Year's. That'll slow things down. And everyone begins to realize how connected we are. And I think that's what Ever Given does much more than anything else. Hmm. Now, one area that was on, on one of your videos that I haven't watched yet was about the Jones Act. I have heard that now is, you know, full disclosure. I, you know, as far as my logistics background, I, I come from sort of the asset side, you know, 3PL. And then I'm expanding through the show. I, I get the opportunity to expand my knowledge. And, and one of the things that I, I was, uh, I've heard the phrase the Jones Act, but I'm not exactly sure what it is or why it's important. I know it is important. So I was hoping that you could break down of, of sort of the background of it and, and why or maybe why not. It's important. Sure. I mean, if you look at the history of the United States, we've had a long history of maritime policy. I mean, one of some of the very first laws, go to the very first Congress, a quarter of the 29 laws written by the first Congress, seven of them are maritime related. So right from the very beginning, we have this very strong maritime focus in our laws. And in 1920, right after World War I, we, we came to a realization that World War I scared us quite a bit. Our trade was really dependent on foreign flag shipping, much like it is today. And when World War I struck, those foreign flag ships either you know, headed for port, like if you were the German fleet, to avoid being seized, or if you were the British, the French, the uh, Italian fleet, you were used in the wartime. And so all of a sudden, American goods piled up on our docks, something we're seeing literally right now. And the only fleet we had that we could use to move our goods was the coastal fleet, which was what was called the protected fleet. And after World War I, we kind of codified that. We put together a law called the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. Uh, it was named for Wesley Jones, a senator from uh, Washington. But there were a lot of other authors and, and people associated with this. And what they wanted to do was make a maritime policy that ensured there were American ships on the high seas and in the coastwise trade. And so one of the things they did, they, they basically put a law that had been in effect since 1817 they codified it, they, they solidified it. And what the Jones Act today says is if you want to move goods, if you want to load goods out of LA and offload them in Oakland or between any two American ports, you can only do that on an American built, American owned, American flagged, and an American crewed vessel. So basically, if you're a Maersk ship flying a Panamanian flag with a Filipino crew, you can't pick up cargo in a U.S. port and drop it off in another U.S. port. You can pick it up and take it to Europe or to Asia, but you just can't move it between U.S. ports. And the reason was to maintain a maritime infrastructure and base. 
With uh, this might sound like a dumb question, but with that, you just mentioned the flags. It, d- d- does a ship get to choose their own flag, or is it maybe just the the, the origin of the, the the I guess the the company name, or how does I guess the flag get chosen, and how do crews get chosen? Sure. So one of the things that happens post World War II, if if you really want to look at what what changes the world post World War II, it's the amount of trade that moves on the world's oceans. So if you look at 1950, the first year, we have good data. There was about a half a billion tons of cargo moved across the world's oceans. This past year, 2021, we're probably looking at over 11 billion tons of cargo Mm -hmm. moved. So literally a 22-fold increase. And so what we've seen is the world's oceans fleets have increased exponentially. And that's largely because we can move goods much more effectively. Containerization, bulk carriers, super tankers. As, as, As ships grow in size, we can move more goods and trade much better. And what happened after World War II was there was a realization that if you are registered under a nation's flag, and a company could choose, a company would choose which you know, flag there would be. If you're an American company, you'd be an American flag vessel. If you're a British company, a British flag vessel. But there was ways prior to World War II to get around neutrality laws. We were trying to help the British fight the Nazis. And so when we wanted to send aid to them, we couldn't do it on American ships because there was laws against that. So Franklin Roosevelt and a few other people figured out, well, wait a minute, we can do this a different way. We can use Panamanian ships, which are an American, to get aid over to the British. And after World War II, you saw that explode. You saw the Panamanian registry explode. People realized, well, wait a minute, we can be an American company, but we can flag our vessels in Panama. We can incorporate our corporations offshore, and we don't have to employ American mariners, which are very expensive. We can employ mariners from other countries. So if you look around the world today, the three largest registries of fleets of vessels today are Panama, Liberia, and the Marshall Islands. And the bulk of the world's mariners, those who sail vessels, come from five countries, Uh, the Philippines, Indonesia, China, India, and I'm going to blank on one here all of a sudden. I I knew I was going to do this when I I did this. I was wondering one of the ones. I apologize. Uh, I was doing no good worries. There It'll probably time. come to you as soon as it's all over. <laughs> but that's it always uh, does. how. It always why does. is it th- those top five countries? Why are all the, the manor- mariners coming? Because that sort of leads into my next question: is is what's the difference? You know, you were a mer- mer- uh, former merchant mariner. How has that sort of evolved from when you were you were one and current present day? Because I'm sort of curious as to how those co- t- top five countries became, I guess, a source for merchant mariners. Well, if you look at it, number one of the Philippines, which is number one, I mean, they provide the most mariners in the world. Uh, a lot of it is because of cost. It, it doesn't, you don't have to pay Filipinos a huge amount of money. So, for example, the International Transport Federation just renegotiated with the big shipping lines the minimum wage for mariners at sea. And when you look at the minimum wage for mariners at sea, it's really low. I'm talking about less than $25 a day. So, you know, you can hire mariners on board vessels and pay them a pretty low wage. But in where they're living, if you're in the Philippines, if you're in Indonesia, if you're in China, you know, the the wage may be great, especially if you're on for several months. You're not spending that money on anything. So you can work for four to six months, earn a lot of salary and then go home and live fairly well. It's why the cruise lines are all registered offshore. Because they can bring on crews from Nepal and all these other countries to work, and they don't have to pay these American minimum wages or American prime, you know, really prime wages 
for mariners. And so you see that diversification being done in the maritime industry. And that's why, especially during COVID, when COVID hit in early 2020, we tend to forget, you know, we talk a lot about truckers and the, and the job of the longshoremen in our ports, but there are 1.8 million seafarers from all these countries that kept working every day. There was no day off mm-hmm. during COVID for mariners. And one of the things that was found out was mariners weren't deemed essential workers. So, you know, at the end of their time, four, six, eight months on a vessel, they couldn't get off because they didn't, there was no vaccinations, they couldn't rotate off. And that meant they were on even longer than usual. And understand, you know, a ship like the Ever Given, which is 400 meters, 1300 feet long, carries 20,000 boxes, has a crew of 25 on board from India. And you know, that's not a lot. You work every day. There's no day off. There's no Saturday or Sunday. It's every day is a Monday. You're working eight to 12 hours a day. And, you know, if you're on past your allotted time, you start losing your edge. You start losing your focus. We've seen a lot of accidents happen at sea recently. And more importantly, if you're a mariner and you can't get off after your time, you may not come back. Or worse, you're a replacement who's supposed to come out and relieve you, may have found a different job. And now we're seeing issues in the crewing right now around the, the world's fleets. That actually happened to a, a buddy of mine who was going to be a former Marine. He wanted to become a merchant Marine. He joined right before COVID hit. And so he was stuck. He thought he was, you know, taking a job that was going to allow him to see the world. And he was stuck on a ship for an extended period of time, months and months after he was supposed to get done. And then all the places that he visited, he, he wasn't able to actually go out and see, you know, the different countries that he was hoping to visit. So it was one of those, I guess, sort of a, you know, a wake up call about, you know, the state of the industry. Of, of where that position is and maybe where it's going in the future. Do you still think it's a, a desirable job for, for U.S.-based workers or is it really a, a job that's going to be covered you know, by these top five countries? It, ironically, in the U.S., it, it's much like the trucking business that we see. You know, The long haul aspect isn't as appealing as the short haul. So you see a lot of mm-hmm. mariners going in for the coastal trade, tankers moving between ports, Tugs and barges, you know, that seems to be it. There's not as much, you know, U.S. Merchant Marine. Again, the U.S. Merchant Marine was number one in the world at the end of World War II. Today, if you look at the deep draft Merchant Marine in both the coastal trade and deep water, there's only 180 ships. And to put that in perspective, there was one yard in China this past year built 194 ships. So, you know, the U.S. Merchant Marine is really a, a shell of what it once was. And what we've seen is most of those world ships are built overseas. China, Korea, and Japan build 93% of the world ships. The Philippines build 1%, and the rest of the 6% are spread out around the world. The U.S. only builds uh, 0.2% of the world ships. So it, wow. it's kind of a dying industry in the United States. Now, now, I guess, you know, the other side of shipping, you know, that it you know, with respect to the Merchant Mariner program, but focusing in other areas such as like the ports, which is obviously a huge story and has been a huge story for, you know, the past year and a half or maybe even two years with the other aspects of shipping, you know, trucking, you know, rail, um, the ports, as I mentioned. How does the U.S. rank, I guess, as far as like innovation is concerned? Are we leading the charge or are we sort of just falling behind with respect to the rest of the world? 
You know, that's the, the, again, an irony of this is, you know, the, 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 the device of containerization was an American design. Malcolm McLean mm-hmm. in 1956, uh, not 50 miles from where I am right now, grew up in Maxton, North Carolina. He was a truck driver. He got frustrated. He ran a trucking firm, got frustrated sitting, waiting to offload his cargo at Red Hook in Brooklyn and developed the idea of modern containerization. It keeps me wondering whether or not there's a trucker right now waiting outside of L.A. and Long Beach or New York, New Jersey, who's got the next great innovation uh, for how we're going to move cargo. But, you know, we were always kind of one of those lead innovators, you know, tankers, uh, uh, LNG carriers, liquefied natural gas. You know, we were always the innovator. But today, that's not the case we're seeing. And a lot of that innovation is shifting overseas. One of the big changes we're about to see happen in the shipping industry is new propulsion methods, zero carbon emissions with a goal to hit that by 2050. And unfortunately, the U.S. is kind of losing its technological edge when it comes to that, there really needs to be more innovation into those areas for us to really be a competitive force in that, or else we're going to be eclipsed by some of these other nations that are really spending money and investing in this technology. Now, I, I know this might be a complex question, but it might you know, sort of uh, lead into what I just asked and how you just answered. But if I were to give you a magic wand, how would you fix U.S. shipping? I think one of the things we have to do is, is raise the attention of, of U.S. shipping, much like what Ever Given did, is, is really kind of raise the role that it has. You know, never before has the focus been on supply chain than we see right now. And yet I can't tell you of one innovation, one idea that's coming out from either business side or government side that is targeting of how we can get back into this shipping industry. Uh, I just did a video on LNG uh, tankers and the fact that we are the largest exporter of LNG in the world today. Since 2016, we've gone from you know exporting 1 billion cubic feet of LNG to exporting over 10 billion cubic feet of LNG, yet we do not have one LNG tanker in our fleet yet. We invented LNG tankers back in the 1960s, built them in the 1970s, yet we have not invested in them. And I think one of the things we have to see is is what's going on in a lot of other areas of freight and cargo is innovation, is money being put in, is being conducive for people to get into it. And I think the other biggest area is attention to it. One of the reasons I started my YouTube page is because people in the shipping industry cannot talk to people outside the shipping industry. They just mm-hmm. can't. They, 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 they're great at talking to each other, but they cannot communicate what shipping is to kind of the masses and the general public. And I think that's one of the reasons why my YouTube kind of took off because I was taking what was going on with Ever Given and I was talking about it so that people could understand. I'm a history teacher. I take very complex things and I don't dumb them down. I never do that, but we make them so that people can understand them and more importantly, go research it even more. One of the things I do always with my YouTube channel is include source notes and places to go so that you can kind of drill deeper if you want to. And I, I think that's what we got to do. We got to raise the people's attention to this industry. It's not in everyone's mindset right now. It is in countries like China, Japan, Korea, where it takes up a large percentage of that nation's you know economy. They realize that. And again, look at us. Our ports are falling behind. You know what LA and Long Beach did. You know LA is going to ma- be able to move over 10 million containers this year, which is a record. It's an amazing feat. 10 million containers this year, but Shanghai is going to move almost 50 million. Rotterdam is going to move more than that. 
you know, if you if you look at the amount of containers of the top 10 or top 20 ports in the world, uh, L.A. and Long Beach are the only two American ones in there. All the rest are largely Asian uh, and then a few European and one Middle East. And we just kind what? of pale in comparison. Why is that? Why is that the, the you know some of these more advanced? I mean, you hear about you know sort of the automated technology that that that's coming in AI that's coming in. Why aren't these ports, I guess, sort of adopting this technology and trying to compete? I mean, from a business perspective, why wouldn't they want to compete with some of the the bigger global shipping ports of the world? I, I, I that that just boggles my mind as far as like American competitiveness. I would think that they would be you know wanting to fight for that top spot. Yeah. And, you know, the, the knee jerk reaction, a lot of people will sit there and say it's unions. Well, American unions, it's too tough to do that. But it's not because if you look at Long Beach, Long Beach just finished a huge expansion of their Long Beach container terminal. And that container terminal would rival a lot of ports around the world. It's a lot of automation, a lot of innovation that goes on in there. And unfortunately, one of the things that's dogging LA right now, for example, is we're just moving containers in a very old fashioned way where we haven't updated it. And the problem is the time to update it isn't when you're in the midst of a supply chain crisis. The time to do this was the years before that. Long Beach had been doing this for 10 years. And again, the other issue you have here, so it's a very weird thing, is that ports in the United States are controlled by states and municipalities. You know, the port of Long Beach and the port of L.A. is controlled by the citizens of the ports of uh, cities of L.A. and Long Beach. Most other areas, they're national assets. And so, for example, when you see there's $2.25 billion in the infrastructure bill devoted to port infrastructure – the federal government's handing that out as grants. There's no real overseeing of a master plan of how to innovate. And, you know, there needs to be a fundamental question. Should we be doubling down in the port of L.A. and Long Beach? Do we want to make L.A. and Long Beach bigger? Or is it better to develop a whole new port away from downtown urban areas where you can move containers faster? And unfortunately, you can't do that because the national government and the federal government has basically deregulated ocean shipping and have taken their hands out of the control of ports. That's a state and local government matter. And it really needs to be, you know, if I could change one thing is really elevate up the position of the Maritime Administration and the Federal Maritime Commission to what I think they should be, a sub-cabinet post or even a cabinet post for maritime affairs in the United States. Right now, it's divided with, without a lot of authority or clout behind it. So with, I guess, a lot of complexities with the, the, the old guard that's currently running everything, what about your, your students that, that you're teaching? Are you finding that they're more, uh, I guess, more interested in global shipping now compared to you know, previous years? Is there maybe more hope coming up in the, in the youthful generation? Oh, you know, it's really interesting because one of the things I I just had a conversation with a a graduate from my alma mater and we were having a a great talk. And one of the things we talked about was the fact was the schools that train merchant mariners don't train merchant mariners really in the industry. They change them. They train them how to run ships, how to do the, you know, the kind of the hands on. Whereas my students here at Campbell, for example, are really interested in the supply chain aspect, the business side, the, you know, the international trade side, the security side, the, uh, the computer side. You know, that's what they're really interested in. And again, I I think we do ourselves a huge disservice when we don't appreciate not just the maritime history of the United States, but the maritime component of our nation. 
You know, the ports really are shut out. And that has a lot to do with technology today. You know, the ports have gotten bigger. You can't get onto a terminal. You can't get on the port of LA and Long Beach. You can't get into Savannah or into New York, New Jersey, like once before, you know, in the 50s and 60s, ships were offloading right at the docks in New York City. That doesn't happen anymore. And so it's behind fences. Nobody really sees it. And unfortunately, the only time they see it is during a maritime disaster. Again, one of the reasons for my YouTube channel was I wanted to put Ever Given, not just focus on the, the, the grounding, but let's put container trade and ocean shipping into context. You know, when, when, when there was a movie came out a few years ago, Captain Phillips about the Somali pirates, I was really livid about it because I felt like, man, this is a great time to talk about what maritime trade was. And we focused on piracy. We didn't focus on what the story was behind it, but at least we saved Tom Hanks, which is really the most important thing. <laughs> Likewise, I would definitely agree with you on on there. W- would you say, is it a, maybe a fair statement that the Ever Given is your favorite story that you've covered so far on your channel? You know, I think Ever Given is 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 really interesting. And I gotta say I got the most tra- traction out of it. I don't think, you know, some people get 15 minutes of fame. I got six, six days worth of fame out of it. Nice. <laughs> and, you know, and I think one of the things that, you know, go go back to what you were talking about at the very beginning of this is, you know, it taught me a lot of lessons too. You know, I was doing these short little hits with news sor- services and I wasn't getting my full story out I wanted to tell. And what better platform to use than YouTube? Let me go on YouTube. I can make a video as long as I want. You know, and and let me put it out there. And I started doing that, and I got a huge following for that. You know, I'd go in more detail. I'd call in people who couldn't say what they wanted to say on the news. Let's go in and do this. And I did it. And you know, one of the amazing things that that happened with that was, is I was doing it, and then Ever Given got out, and then there was the story about it being stuck. But then I kind of stopped doing things. And I had somebody who actually sent me a note. It's like, what are you doing? Why'd you stop? We want to know more. And so you know, I started doing more videos and and, and getting it out there. And kind of got discouraged for a little bit there in the summer because, uh, you know, it wasn't getting a lot of hits. The the numbers were going down. But then I did a couple of stories on the supply chain crisis. And, man, that's when it just blew up again. And, you know, I, I think, you know, right now the supply chain crisis is really the one I, I, that gets me because that one touches everyone. Ever given, you know, was kind of – for imagery, it was great. But people understand when they go to their stores and there's not stuff on the shelf. Or, you know, the, hey, I ordered something on Amazon and it's not coming for weeks at a time, but I can show you a video of a ship coming into Houston loaded with 53-foot Amazon boxes and we can talk about that story and they understand that. So I, I got to say the supply chain is, is it for me right now. I, I love it because you really have, like, like you said earlier, you have a way of taking these complex topics and breaking it down to where it's, it's more uh, it, it's more relatable for folks who are, you know, maybe just sitting in a home office or or going to the grocery store and wondering why things, you know, it doesn't look as full as, you know, as, as it typically would. Now, we got a couple minutes left. Uh, what's what's next for you and the channel? Are you going to be covering more shipping related topics? Please say yes. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, it becomes kind of an obsession. I got to be careful because it takes about, you know, all of a sudden you start doing it and it becomes kind of you, you feed into it. But no, you know, I, I've, a couple of things I wanted to do. So, you know, I've had a couple of guests on, which I found really interesting. You know, I, I, I don't want to do an interview show and, and just do that. You know, there's someone who does a great podcast who interviews executives. That's not what I want to get into, but I really want to bring in some subject matter experts. Some of the best videos I did was, you know, there's a guy on, on YouTube, Brian Boyle, who's a, who's a, a mariner and he showed what it was like in the port of Savannah, for example, from the deck plates. And I literally, you know, teamed up with him. I used his video and I broke it down a little further. And, you know, to me, those are the great stories to do. And, you know, one of the things I found out is be consistent, be, you know, get a routine. People expect you're going to post videos on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. 
do that. You know, I, I got like a Monday recap I do of the top five stories, try to keep it less than 30 minutes, get it in there and then hit some other stories and, and be topical too. you know, when, when an event ha- happens, if there's a, you know, some story, to hit, try to get out quick with it, but at the same time, be concise. And, but also, you know, mistakes are going to be made. A lot of historians don't ever like to say anything because they, they want it to be a hundred percent. And let me be clear on YouTube. You're never gonna be a hundred percent. You're gonna make mistakes, get it out there and you can always fix it later in my opinion. Well, I I appreciate tons and tons of insight, Sal. You can check out more of his work over on YouTube. What's going on with shipping? Appreciate your perspective. Really a a, a wealth of knowledge. Um, So thank you so much, Sal. I'll I'll link to the channel in the show notes, but we got a few seconds left. So thank everybody for for joining in on the show. We will be back cyberly next Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you back here next week. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Digital Dispatch Podcast. If you like what you heard, consider sharing it with a friend. Podcast discoverability is a bit of a challenge for creators like myself, so word of mouth goes a long way. You can check out past episodes of the show by hitting up the learn page on digitaldispatch.io. I also have some free courses on the site that cover content marketing, distribution, and even how to audit your own website. That's going to come in handy as everyone starts to prepare for those 2022 budgets. While you're there, you can also check out our socials, the DIY shop, or custom services. Until next time, I'm Blythe Brumleaf, and I will see you real soon.